invite you to turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We are continuing our study through the first 12 chapters of John. Lord willing, next week we'll finish chapter 12 and then we'll uh, take a break and and, uh, do a study elsewhere. Today we're in chapter 11. And as we think about this passage, you know, we're all familiar with stories both from the past and that are told even today, stories that end with tragedy. We're used to that. That's a normal part of storytelling. Famous stories like Romeo and Juliet or To Kill a Mockingbird. Sadness and sorrow always seem to accompany even the best stories. Death brings its tentacles and touches and grabs and holds on to every story. Even the greatest stories of all time are affected by tragedy and death. And you know, even those stories that we're familiar with that end with, um, uh, and they all lived happily ever after. Well, we all know even that isn't exactly true. Because they, they, they may, the story might end happily, but there is no ever after. Because death is a reality in this world ever since Adam and Eve sinned. And the painful reality of death and all that it brings and all that the tentacles of death reach into, it means that sorrow and sadness and death are just a reality in this world. It's something that we have to deal with every single day in one way or another. Our passage today from John 11 is a story that seems to end in tragedy. But in God's incredible kindness and in the power of Jesus Christ, we actually walk away from this story with a glimmer of hope, even in the face of death, even in the face of sorrow. And sadness. Yes, it's filled with those things. It's filled with sadness. It's filled with death, this story. But Lord, the Lord is so kind to bring hope even in the midst of it. And it's a hope that if you have it in your life, it will change how you view all sadness, all sorrow, and even death itself. And the hope that this story gives us has the power to change your life. So my hope is that even even if you're familiar with this story, that you would come away with a new sense of hope this morning. We begin with the first reality from this passage. The Lord is working his purpose out. So if you're taking notes, this is the first point we're going to make this morning. The Lord is working his purpose out. This is from verses 1 through 16. Let me read that passage. Now, a man was sick, Lazarus, from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair, and it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 
Now, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you and you're going there again? Aren't there 12 hours in a day? Jesus answered. If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this, and then he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will get well. Verse 13, Jesus, however, was speaking about his death. But they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Then Thomas called twin said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him. The Lord is working his purpose out. There is something in this passage that if you slow down and look at it, it kind of just wham. It hits you in the face. It is stunning. And maybe because of your familiarity with the story, maybe you slipped over it. Maybe you didn't notice it. But what Jesus does, when he finds out that Lazarus is sick, he delays. He doesn't go straight to him. Obviously, they sent for Jesus because they believe he could do something about Lazarus' sickness, or at least could be there to comfort him, but Jesus delays. And he says specifically the reason for his delay. Verse 4, when Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus delays on purpose, and that purpose is the glory of God, specifically seen through the Son of God and His power over death. You catch this when you notice how, when John writes this, he uh, draws attention to the the time markers. Like again in verse 4, when it says, when Jesus heard it. John's trying to get our attention. When Jesus heard it, he made this declaration that it was for the glory of God. And then verse 6, this is... This is remarkable. Well, actually, look at verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. Verse 6, so. Therefore, he loved them, and therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed. In other words, Jesus stayed to let Lazarus die. Just let that sink in. He stayed to let Lazarus die. Jesus, Jesus loved his friends there in Bethany. He loved them, and that's why he stayed. He loved them because he knew what he was going to do and what that would do for them. It would increase their faith. So let's bring that together. That means that Jesus is concerned with ultimately displaying the glory of God so that God's people will grow in faith. And in fact, verse 15 says, Jesus says to his disciples, 
I'm glad for you. I rejoice. I'm happy that I wasn't there so that you may believe. So this means we have to recognize that in this in the face of sadness and sorrow, I mean, you can imagine the panic and the concern, the worry of, of Martha and Mary, so worried that they send for Jesus, they're, they're, they're concerned, and Jesus waits. But it's all because he knows what he's doing. The Lord always works his purposes out. Even in the midst of sorrow and sadness and even death. That's a little bit hard for us to wrap our minds around, but at the same time, I think, it, I think parents do this all the time. Parents withhold something from their children because they know that if they require their children to wait or maybe to learn a hard lesson that something good will come out on the other end. Now, parents sometimes get this terribly wrong, and it, and it, and it kind of blows up in our face, but that's because parents are sinful, fallen human beings, not perfect. But yet the idea is still there. Parents can have a, a bigger picture of what's going on. That's Jesus here. Jesus has a bigger picture, the glory of God. Now, let me give you another illustration. Waiting for a flight. And you stand there at the window... And you look out across the airfield. You see planes going this way. Planes taxiing that way. You see planes lined up over here. And you're standing there and your flight is delayed. You don't know why it's delayed. You don't understand. Your plane's just sitting there. But you look out and you see all that. You have no idea what's going on. All you know is that you're being affected by all that's going on out there. But the air traffic controller knows exactly what he is doing. He has it all under control. He knows these planes have to go over here to make room for these planes so that these planes can take off and then the, he knows how it all works. Jesus looks into the face of death and he has a greater purpose that he is working out. And the result for disciples, for followers of Jesus is increased faith. Just, just think about how this impacts every arena of your life. Every aspect, every sphere of your life that you can think of. Everywhere that sadness and sorrow and even death touches your life. At all times, the Lord is working out His purposes for His glory and your increased faith. That happens within the arena of the local church any difficulties or sorrow or sadness, any challenges he brings into the life of a church, we can always be confident that he has a purpose, that he has his glory in mind and our faith in mind. He's working to increase our faith. That's true of your job. Whatever employment you have or maybe a lack of a job, whatever, you, whatever is going on in that arena of your life that's difficult, or challenging, all along, God is working out His purposes. His glory will be seen, and your faith will increase. That's what He wants. That's what He's after. With every, even the minutest dif- difficulties at your job. 
or pull back to just our, our whole society. You know, what, whatever bad thing you can think of in our culture that you know is wrong or immoral or frustrating or irritating, God is working his purposes out. God will ultimately bring glory to himself. Whether it's in this life or not, we might not see it. In fact, I trust we will, see, uh, we will not see most of it until heaven. But even at that point, it will be clear that all things were working for his glory and the increased faith of you, his people. So don't, don't look at our culture with cynicism. Look with hope. Look with faith, knowing God is doing something. And of course, that's also true in your family. And in fact, you, whatever family the Lord has in your home with you right now, or, or even already out of the home, this is one of the primary arenas of your life where the Lord wants you to, whatever the difficulties you're facing, to look to Him in faith, to believe that He is working His purposes out. And it makes Him glad to see your faith increase as a result, and that's why he does it. To display his glory and increase your faith. If Jesus is glad because the disciples' faith is going to grow as a, as a result of Lazarus' death, then you can trust him that he is after your faith in whatever difficulty you face. The Lord is working his purposes out. Secondly, The second reality we see here is that the Lord hates death more than you do. The Lord hates death more than you do. Look look at verse 17 where we see Jesus coming to Bethany and interacting with Martha and then Mary. Let's, Let's read this. Verse 17. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her crying, and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, 
Couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? We find Jesus here coming to Bethany, interacting with Martha and Mary, and what is revealed is how Jesus really feels about death. So you see, we just saw his assertion of power and and his confidence in the face of death that something good actually can ultimately come, but yet we also find that Jesus is truly man. He displays here real human emotions. We find that Jesus hates death more than even we do. And since Jesus reveals the Father to us, we we understand this is how God feels about death. Death was not part of his original design for the creation. He did not design the world with death worked into it. Adam and Eve are the ones who in their sin unleashed death and sickness and sorrow and all that goes with it, all the tentacles that reach out from death and grab hold of everything and soil everything, it goes back to that sin. This was not God's original plan for the creation. And so we find that reflected in Jesus' interactions here. First, with Martha, he shows that death does not intimidate him. He's not scared of death. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But look at what Jesus says. First, in verse 23, he says, your brother will rise again. Now, we know what he's talking about, but Martha thinks he's talking about just a a general resurrection. Someday off in the future. Daniel chapter 12 uh, speaks about that. So all good Jews at that time believed in that. But Jesus gets more specific in verse 25 where he shows he's not intimidated by death. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He himself is the resurrection. Life is in him. I mean, this is a human man speaking to Martha saying this. You know, she loves Jesus. She respects him, reveres him. But but she's looking at a man making an assertion that can only be true of God. I am the resurrection and the life. It's in me. She expresses her faith in him. Yes, I I believe that, Lord, but but we understand she's not fully there. She needs to to grow in her faith too, just like the disciples do. Jesus is unfazed by her kind of confusion and misunderstanding. He's not intimidated by death. We also see in his interaction with Mary that he feels the sorrow of death. I mean, as a kid, you were probably this way too, uh, I was always excited to say that I at least knew one verse from the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. I was always excited if there was a, you know, a call to recite a memory verse. Hey, I've got one. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. Boom, sit down. It's a pretty amazing verse though. Especially when you remember what Jesus has just said. He's just, he's just said, I'm not afraid of death. I'm the resurrection and the life. But at the same time, his friend Mary comes and in her sorrow, you know, she says the same thing as Martha. Did you see that? She said, if you'd been here, Jesus, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And it, but she, she has a different response. Martha was disappointed in Jesus. Mary is just sad. And Jesus shares that. 
the, the word that's translated wept, it could be translated burst into tears. It, it's almost as if the closer he gets to the tomb of Lazarus, the more real it's becoming to him. And it's a sudden bursting into tears. But there's another emotion that comes as he interacts with, with Mary. Uh, in, in verse 33, when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who'd come with her crying, he was, it says, deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Different translations are going to put this different way, different ways. But these words, that, that he, yes, he was deeply moved. He's deeply moved with anger. Deeply moved with anger. Anger at death and what death has done to humanity. And all of its tentacles and all of its sorrow that it brings with it as it reaches out and grabs hold of things. But that second word, uh, where it translated in, deeply moved in the spirit and troubled, that word troubled was often used uh, with a, a, when referring to war horses as they would snort and prepare to go into battle. So it has the same imagery of a warrior about to do battle, which is exactly what Jesus is. He is about to face the enemy, death, and he is gearing up. He's moved by the reality of death, but he's not moved to do nothing. He is moved to do something. He's moved to take action. I think this is just so encouraging to see Jesus Truly God, who can say, I am the resurrection and the life, but simultaneously, truly man, a real human being. He has walked in our steps. Any sadness you know, any difficulty you know, any grief you know, Jesus knows it from personal experience. And it affected him he was touched by it. He, he's, not, he's not like the God of Islam who is removed and transcendent only. He is transcendent and personal, close, near. Because he's been here. That, that's a mystery. We don't understand fully how it works that Jesus is truly God and truly man in one person. But that's what the Christian church has has always taught because that's what the Bible makes clear and that's what Jesus made clear about himself. And so it's right to hold on to that belief. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder if you think often about the fact that you have no power over death. Maybe you approach your life, you approach your health and well-being with this sense of I've got to do whatever I can to live as long as possible because I'm terrified of dying. Underneath that is the the recognition that you have no power over death. None of us have power over death. Jesus has power over death. If you're not a believer, come to Jesus today and, and, and you will find someone who has complete power over death. He's felt the pain of death and yet he has the power over it. You can trust him. Well, now let's move to see why we can trust him. It's because... I skipped a page. Sorry about that. 
It's because, thirdly, he is worthy of our awe. He's worthy of our awe. He's worthy of our faith, our confidence in him. Just look at what he does here. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you hear me. I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this, so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Jesus has power over death. And it's shown here to be a complete and total power. And this, is supposed, this should lead to our awe, us just standing in amazement at Jesus and who he is, and especially his power over death, which means his power over all sadness and sorrow in this world and in your life. In a, earlier in this passage, we just saw a minute ago, he asserted with his words that he has power over death. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He, he made it clear, I have the power to give life. But those are just words. Unless he proves it. Which is what he does here. And how does he do it? With words. All he does is say, Lazarus, come out. And a dead man comes out. The the picture of verse 44, the dead man came out bound hand and foot. He he basically comes hopping out. They would bind the body. They would bind it tightly with strips of linen. I mean, he was wrapped completely around. His face was covered. Lazarus come out just with words. Lazarus comes back to life. It's been four days. That number is very specific because uh, the rabbis taught that there, there was no hope of a miracle after three days. You can imagine sometimes um, people being very sick and going to some sort of coma, but passing out, and, but, but reviving. But this was the fourth day. And he's dead until Jesus comes. And you know, it, it's good that he specified. It's good that he said, Lazarus. Otherwise, every tomb would have been empty. <laughs> Jesus' words, I am the resurrection of the life, are proven by his words, Lazarus come out, that he has this power over death. But you know, it's very easy to look at this with, with skepticism. And you know, it'd be easy to look at the words of Jesus with skepticism because if, if, if he can't do what it says he did here, then they're just words. 
Um, I don't know if you know the story of the first Ferris wheel, but it was, it was a part of the Chicago World's Fair in 1893. And uh, it, it was, the intention was to sort of outdo the Eiffel Tower. Uh, you know, just classic Americans, we got to be better than Paris. You know, we got to be better than everybody. We got to win. And so that was the goal. And so there'd been a, a call out to um, engineers, to architects, to design something greater, more interesting, more exciting than the Eiffel Tower. And so this guy, Mr. Ferris, he came up with this idea for the Ferris wheel. Nothing like this had ever been done. No one had ever seen anything like this. So you can imagine, uh, as spectators looked on, as they saw the, the wheel was completed, they hadn't added any cars to it yet. You can imagine looking at that thinking... There's no way. There's no way that's going to work. It was just words. It was just an idea on paper. Then it was just an idea kind of standing there until the cars got attached and people got in the cars and they went around and they came back safely. It worked. That's Jesus here. His words are just words if he can't do what the words say. But he can He raises Lazarus from the dead. And the implications of this are so far-reaching, we can't even scratch the surface. Number one, it means that for you today, not only can you have confidence that God has a purpose, that He wants to show the glory of God so that your faith in Him will increase, but it means, number two, that even any sadness and sorrow and death in your life, that that's not the end of the story. That you can have confidence in Jesus that he is, is in charge, that he's doing what he plans to do for his own purposes. And that whatever sadness you have, you can look to him in faith. He has the power. You can take him at his word. It's sweet to trust in Jesus and take him at his word because he proves himself over and over and over. He proves himself here. We have to beware of cynicism. It's so easy for us to look at our lives, to look at our culture, to look at what's going on around us and just be filled with a kind of cynical skepticism. You know, the sort of, well, nothing good is going to happen, but if something good does happen, well, that would be great. God doesn't call us to live like that. He doesn't call you to walk through every day like that. He calls you to look to Jesus who has this power over death that he demonstrated first with Lazarus as kind of like like a trailer, a movie trailer. And the, the movie that it's previewing was first of all his own death and resurrection. He was showing them just days before it happened, look, I'm gonna do this for myself. I'm gonna die on a cross in the place of sinners. I'm gonna be truly dead, and then I'm going to be raised from the dead. I have that authority. I have that power. So he, he, it's a preview of that. But as 1 Corinthians 15 makes really clear, it's a preview of our own resurrection. For every person who believes in Jesus, who puts your faith in Jesus, turn, repentance from your sins and faith in Jesus, for every true disciple, you have a hope that your decaying, aging, groaning body 
will one day be renewed. Yes, you may experience, Jesus could return and you may not have to experience physical death, but for most of us, we will experience physical death, but that won't be the end. Because Jesus has this power, we can have great hope and great confidence that all the suffering we go through in this life, if we trust in Jesus, it's not the end of the story. It doesn't end ultimately in tragedy. Because this story did not end in tragedy. Final truth we need to see this morning is that the Lord is in control. The Lord is in control. This truth kind of lies under the surface in this whole passage, but it's seen very clearly and in a, in a surprising way in this last section of chapter 11. Look at verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And he stayed there with the disciples. What we find here is that Jesus is not bound by the scheming of his opponents. They're at work. They're trying to do something. But he's not, he's not bound by their planning. He has his own plan, his own purposes. He is in control. He's in control at this point in the story in John. And he's in control right now in this world and in your life. The Lord is in control we see in this last section here that the Jewish leaders, their, their unbelief, their persistent opposition to Jesus, you know, it's not a sort of honest, well, we just don't really understand, we just don't believe kind of thing. The motives become clear, exposed fully and completely. Look at verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Look, they recognize that Jesus really has been doing these miracles. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and maybe you're skeptical about the miracles, look, Jesus' opponents did not deny that Jesus did these miracles. Verse 47, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? They... They knew he was doing signs. They just didn't like what he was after because of their motives. They are saying that if Jesus, if people believe in Jesus, that the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're fearful of losing their prestige and their, their wealth that comes with being prominent leaders. It's greed. It's fear. And fundamentally, it's a lack of trust in God and his way of bringing about his purposes. 
So they're not just, you know, kind of skeptical, uh, thinking carefully. You know, we're, we're just trying to decide what we really think about Jesus. No, they're greedy and they want to keep power. That's why they reject Jesus. It's crystal clear. But this is, this is ridiculous. It, it's, you know, the Lord, Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage? Uh, and then it says that the Lord laughs. The Lord laughs in derision. You know, who, who do you think you are? What, what do you think you're doing? You're not in control here. These, these Pharisees are not in control. And there's, there's two ways this is demonstrated. One is just very simply in verse 54 that Jesus uh, d- departed uh, and, and stayed with his disciples. He's waiting for the right time. Chapter 12 will show us that it, it then is the right time, but this moment was not the right time. But the second thing is this whole thing with Caiaphas. This is another way where the, the Lord holds them in derision, where the Lord is working his purposes out. The Lord is in control, not these Jewish leaders. See, Caiaphas says, look, we need to, this man needs to kind of, we need to let him die, even though everybody is going to him, even though he's very popular. We need to let him die. Well, we need to kill him. Because if he does, that will settle things down for us. He needs to die for the nation, which really just means for their own power. But, but John, the writer, he says, you know, Caiaphas thought he was hot stuff here. But, well, he was kind of partly true. That's what John says. He's like, he, was, he was partly true. Yeah, Jesus was going to die for the nation. But he was not going to die so that they could keep their power. He was going to die to atone for the sins of people. He was going to die on a cross. Yes, be executed. Yes, murdered as an innocent man. But he was going to die and take on himself our sin. Not only the sins of the people, but also the, to unite the scattered children of God, scattered both in space and time. Because here we are 2,000 years later, and Jesus died for our Sins on that cross. He sacrificed himself so that we would be forgiven and receive the righteousness of God and receive God's favor and forgiveness. So yes, Jesus is going to die for the nation, but not in the way that Caiaphas thinks because the Lord is in control here. The Lord is bringing about his purposes. And you know, that, that's, that's where we need to end. If God can work good from the evil of the Roman cross where Jesus died. And not just any good, but your salvation, your deliverance from hell, your freedom and eternal life. God brings that about through the horror and the evil and the wickedness of the death of the most wonderful and perfect man who ever lived. If God can bring good out of that evil, then everything else, everything else pales in comparison. He remains in control at all times, no matter what sorrow and sadness and evil you face. You can trust him. He's in control. We sing our final song today on the wondrous cross. The reason it's so wondrous is because of what God did.
because of accomplishing our salvation through that cross. That's why we look on it in wonder. That's why we look on it with amazement and we see in it the hope that we can have even in the darkest days of our life on this earth because Jesus died on that cross and was raised for our justification. Let's pray. So, Lord, we turn our eyes to the cross. We are able to come to you, Father, because of what the cross accomplished. We have hope for eternal life because of the cross. And, Lord, we should resolve to live our lives in light of the cross. Lord, we resolve, and I pray, I pray that even this morning someone would resolve in a way that they never have before, resolve to, to give their life fully and completely to following you, to see that you are Lord and Savior because of the cross. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the resurrection and the life, to find a hope that endures. We pray all this through Jesus and in his holy name. Amen.